out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the designer and artist. It is Aubrey Powell, who was part of Hypnosis with Storm. And uh, they specialised in creating album covers for the likes of Pink Floyd, uh, T-Rex, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, ACDC and many more. He went on to do lots of videos as well and he's still in the creative business. Anyway, this is the interview and he's also got a book out which is titled um, Through the Prism which is available from all good bookshops and also online. Do check it out. It is very, very good. But anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was um, well, I've been talking about sort of most artists and uh, creative types often have a zeitgeist period but sometimes struggle when their you know, moment has slightly gone and there's a new wave of uh, creative people on the scene. So anyway, this is Aubrey's response to that fascinating point that I was making. Anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy. I, I think it was difficult for all of us because with hypnosis coming out of, uh, you know, a kind of era where the album cover was the most important thing apart from the album into a kind of punk era, where Jamie Reed developed uh, never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistols which probably cost about two pounds um it was a bit of a shock and also dvds came along and cds which were about this big and so suddenly that canvas of 24 inches by 12 inches was gone so what was the interest for us yes it was interesting because i did an interview not with jamie reed but with the guy who curates his and, and sort of archives all his work last week because he just brought a book out at the end of last year so it's kind of interesting seeing the progression from your work in the 70s to that sort of suddenly the next decade or the next kind of phase goes on because the one thing I've noticed because I've done a lot of interviews with bands that most bands have a five-year narrative where they're on the zeitgeist if they're lucky but then it's what happens next and it also happens with producers engineers and obviously designers as well so you must have had that experience with, with you know working with you know throughout the you know, early 70s into that sort of punk and then the sort of 80s period well funnily enough not really because what happened was at the end of that kind of as you say zeitgeist of uh, it was a 15-year period for hypnosis when we were on absolutely at the top of our game we're doing album covers music video came along and we just transitioned into music videos and took all our clients, the Paul McCartney's, the Jimmy Page, the Robert Plants, all those sort of people, we took them with us into music video. And so it was a sort of transitional period. And we also took the kind of surrealist ideas that we'd been using hypnosis and put that into moving picture. And so it actually wasn't that difficult for us. We just moved right along. And I think the trick uh, of any band or any designer in the music industry is to keep reinventing yourself and moving along with whatever's going along at the time. Yes. And that's the art of survival, which is why I'm still the creative director and still working 53 years later on. You know. Which is, yes, quite a run. But it's kind of always interesting how, how people kind of start their journey. And yours, yours was in Cambridge, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, I'm afraid to say it's often about who you know and, um, and, and the right time, right place. And uh, 
The Pink Floyd, who are not the Pink Floyd at that time, uh, Roger Waters, Sid Barrett, um, who were Cambridgeites, moved down to London and later David Gilmore. And I was part of that whole circle of friends and, and also moved to London. And when Pink Floyd started, they made their first albums, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, second album, they said, well, who are we going to get to do the album cover? We don't want our pictures on the front anymore like it was before and all that sort of stuff. And Storm Thorgerson, my partner, we put our hand up and said, how about us? <laughs> and the next minute we knew was that uh, they said, fine. And little did I know that Source of Full of Secrets, the first album cover we did, would lead on to other things and, uh, and Dark Side of the Moon in 1973. Yes. After our career went... <laughs> It right. did. So what was your kind of 60s period like? Because, you know, obviously from the Philip Larkin poem, you know, the 60s started about 63 with the first Beatles album and Lady yeah. Chatterley's Lover. And then you had this kind of explosion, which by 67 was, you know, in San Francisco, there was the gathering of the tribes. Then we had the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at Ali Pali in 67 yeah. with Pink Floyd and Yoko Ono and probably Arthur Brown because he was everywhere. So what was, did you also go through that kind of period of kind of exploration and kind of interest? Without doubt, I think when I was at school, which was in the early 60s, um, you know, I was already into the, what I call the beatnik phase and very much into people like Allen Ginsberg, the poet from San Francisco, uh, uh, reading Howl magazine, uh, City Lights Review, all that sort of alternative uh, world, if you like, when I was only sort of 14 or 15. And so it was a kind of natural progression that when I left school and found myself living in Cambridge, that I gravitated towards Storm Thorgerson, my partner in hypnosis, and his group of friends, because everybody was in, into the same sort of thing, into the movies of Louis Bunuel, you know, into the art of um, uh, René Magritte, or into Salvador Dali, this, this, this kind of movement towards interesting and, and alternative ways of seeing things. And of course that involved taking LSD, et cetera, you know, and that sort of opened our eyes to a, a more interesting environment, um, not just stuck in the same old, same old conservative movement, which had come from the Second World War, which yes. my parents were a part of. Uh, and many middle-class people aspired to for a, a sense of security, and I was not interested in that, and no other people that I was hanging around with. You know. So but if you ask about music, my music uh, at that time was The Small Faces, The Who, you know, all those sort of bands that had, and The Rolling Stones, which had really come up with interesting stuff at the time, prior to Pink Floyd. And uh, yes. uh, sort of, in a sense, innovators of the uh, of the early 60s. Yes. And did you, at that, that stage where the 60s sort of comes to an end, you know, as, as things like Altamont and Charles Manson, and then you had the, the death of, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis yeah. Joplin, and the year before, Brian Jones. Did that feel a little bit kind of like, oh, was that the party over? Because I've done interviews with people like Joe Boyd and Barry Miles, and I sort of asked Barry, you know, what happened to you in the 70s? He said, we were just all really tired. We just couldn't keep it going. We just wanted to sleep, which kind of seemed like, a, yes, quite an honest answer, really. So did you feel a bit like, oh, that's that the establishment did say it was all going to finish and they're right? Or did, did you sort of have a kind of creative or kind of excited no this isn't the end I've got the baton we're, we're the next generation coming along 100 percent 
Storm and I took the baton and ran with it. I was not interested in being held back by the kind of uh, hippie schmippy kind of vibe. It wasn't my scene. I wanted to make money. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to, to make art. I wanted to do interesting things. And there were people out there like Peter Blake, who had done Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album cover for the Beatles. And I just saw an opportunity with Storm and thought, this is the way forward. And I, I, I didn't for one second look back and think those were wonderful, heady days. I just simply didn't, nor did Storm. We were too interested in getting on and created, creating interesting visuals. Um, and I, 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 I don't know. I, I sort of left that world very quickly. Um, and also I'd seen casualties. I shared a flat with Sid Barrett, who, um, as we know, sadly, one of my best friends had you know, a terrible time with LSD and went kind of mad, I suppose. And mm. I didn't want to go down that route. I thought, you know what? No, that's not for me. Um, and Storm felt the same. And, you know, we started the company and started to be serious about the work that we did. Yes. And I think laterally, not putting a photograph of the band on the album cover with the title and the name of the band, you know, boring. So uh, I think it was an opportunity and, and, and we took it. And did you, what was that relationship? Because Storm is is kind of like great, a lot of great kind of uh, artistic movements and probably business have a kind of partnership. Storm is amazingly important. But his childhood was also quite interesting because he went to the famous, is it A.S. Neal School, didn't he, Summerhill, which is kind of in this area. So did he, was he quite an unusual character when you first met him? When I first met Storm, which was during a drug bust on his mother's house, which was... Kind of a strange thing, but we we immediately formed a bond, and, and because I didn't run a, a, away, I suppose. But uh, I realised that he was a fellow who uh, he thought completely out of the box. He was not your usual run of the mill uh, university student at that time. He was incredibly intelligent, incredibly intense, with a wonderful sense of humour, um, and and I realised also that he was somebody who could help me. And he was my mentor for the first two years in hypnosis. There's no question about that. Um, he, he had a grasp of, I think, what, what we, one would call an alternative world. And this definitely came from him going to Summerhill. Summerhill A.S. O'Neill School was very much um, alternative thinking. It was a place where you did what you wanted to, you had no rules. If you attended class, you could. If you didn't, you didn't. And I think this gave him, uh, I think Nick Mason summed it up well. He said he was a man who couldn't take a yes for an answer. And I think that's absolutely right. If you said to Storm, yes, I like that, he'd argue 360 degrees for about four hours as to why it wasn't right. And he was just one of those extraordinary characters. Uh, but out of that came some absolute spurts of genius. Um, and he was very difficult to work with. And he and I had many fights. And, um, but that 15 years together as hypnosis, which is what I write about in the book, was probably one of the most uh, sort of inventive, cooperative, um, and exciting periods in my life. You know? Yes, I can see it. There was I went once went to one of those workshops. Tony Robbins, you know, one of those how to I don't know help your life or you know empower yourself. And he said you, 
you know, you are the kind of percentage of the people you you hang out with. He said it better than that, but you know what I mean. You are kind of, you know, the reflection of the people you hang out with is going to have a big impact. So obviously, hanging out with, you know, Sid Barrett, you know, Pink Floyd, that artistic scene and Storm, you know, obviously reflects also on the people you're choosing to be with. What were, the, was, what were they like? What was Sid? Did you sort of find Sid an interesting creative character or was that not, was he quite different to Storm? Very different from Storm. Sid was a very sensitive, bubbly, sweet guy who walked around always on the balls of his feet, often no shoes on, uh, often stripped to the waist. He was always inventing things. I always remember one day I walked into his room in Earlham Street in London when he was still at, at the Hornsey College of Art. And I remember him taking, um, there was a bare light bulb and he simply took a brown paper bag, ripped the top off and just curled it around the light bulb and there was this beautiful soft light. I thought, oh my God, that's so simple and so clever. And yet that was Sid. I mean, if you walked into his room in Cambridge, where his mother's house was, uh, the room was covered in duodecahedrons. He'd made out of balsa wood, incredibly complex, very difficult to make. But for Sid, it just seemed sort of like natural. I mean, he was a very natural painter. I call him, I suppose, a 60s Renaissance man. He could turn his his craft to anything, singing, playing guitar in a unique way with that Zippo lighter, creating those early kind of Pink Floyd space rock sounds. Um, you know, he just was a very gentle, beautiful person. And it was extremely sad that we lost him in a world of uh, LSD fug, basically. It was, it was horrendous. So then how did you sort of start the company and how did you sort of manage to manoeuvre and sort of find yourself on the zeitgeist of this kind of early 70s period? Because obviously there'd been the kind of the rise of the, I suppose you'd had those garage bands and then you had the singer-songwriter appearing and then the glam period of Sweet and Slade and, you know, David Bowie. So there was quite a lot of new artists coming along as well as kind of the heavy rock scene with people like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. So how did you sort of manage to sort of navigate your way into that, that, that kind of aura? Well, I think like anything else, it's luck bit of talent and uh, being in the right place at the right time. And I think when we started doing things with Pink Floyd, like Saucer Full of Secrets, going on to things like um, Atom Heart Mother, just with a picture of a cow with no name of the band and no title and, and, and you know, very surrealist ideas really. And, and, and a kind of dadaist movement in a sense that we were after. Uh, people took notice and suddenly the phone started to ring. You know, we had a, we had a studio in Soho and um, suddenly people like Jimmy Page were phoning up, suddenly people like, uh, you know, uh, Paul McCartney were phoning up, you know, we've seen what you've done, uh, we'd be interested to work with you, can we collaborate? And, and sure enough, we did. And luckily, people accepted our ideas, uh, which were often nothing related to the music or to the lyrics or to the title of the album. It was simply ideas that were definitely off the wall. Yes. And I think that was important then. You have to remember that if you went to a record emporium like Tower Records, there were 10,000 albums facing you. And if you could possibly catch somebody's attention with the album cover, this was kind of important. And album covers were seen to be important at that time. Well, I was going to say, because I got a brother, I was born 64, so, but my brother's seven years older and he, he was perfect for the prog rock world, really, of, you know, 
yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barclay, James Harvest, the, the solo work of Rick Wakeman, and also Pink Floyd. So obviously I used to sneak into his room when he said, don't go into my room to play my records and play his records and be mesmerised with these albums, you know, and, and they were just otherworldly when you're about 11, 12. They are just absolutely out there. And it's kind of interesting how important they represented. And he was the sort of person who refused to have a seven-inch single because you weren't a proper music fan with that. And you'd buy the, the plastic kind of cover that you put on the album as well. So you wouldn't even get a little smudge on your fingers. You had to wash your hands. You learned to wash your hands before touching his records, really, because he'd sort of look at them. So they they represented more than just music. They represented the person, didn't they? Well, I, I think buying an album in the 1970s, you know, you, you, you were sort of, you know, you, you went to a record shop on a Saturday afternoon and you picked the album you wanted and then you looked for something else because you could afford two albums that week and you took them home and it was like a holy communion. You know, you, you, you broke the seal, you took the album out of the inner sleeve, you then placed it on the deck, you put the stylus on the, on the thing and first of all you heard <laughs> before it started to play the music. And then you sat back in your chair and you opened up the album cover, which was a gatefold, 24 inches by 12 inches, big canvas to look at. And you studied it. You wanted to have some signpost as to what your favorite band was all about. What were they up to? Because you have to remember there was probably only three rock and roll newspapers. There was probably two uh, TV programs, Great Old Grey Whistle Test and Top of the Pops. And that was about as much information as you were going to get. And so the album cover was a sort of, you know, Bible of what was going on with the band at the time. And sometimes it was extremely esoteric and very sort of um, unrelated to the band. But if you could fathom it out, then you were pretty smart. And often hypnosis did things that were nothing to do with the band at all. Black, Led Zeppelin, a black object for presence, you know. Yes. That all, what's that all about? Well, there is some logic behind it. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it was intriguing. It, it, it generated curiosity from the fan. And I think if you could engage people like that, then you had succeeded in the art of the record cover. Yes. There was also two other things. You just sniffed the record because it always smelled so good when you bought it new and then got very <laughs> neurotic about it being slightly warped Absolutely. and just watched the needle go, oh, my God, it's warped. What should I do? Don't panic. Don't panic. Don't worry. Don't put it in the oven. Try and make it level. That's a right. disaster. People did try it, didn't they? Yeah, so how did, I mean, at the time then, did you, I mean, you came up with, you know, like the cow and then the amazing Pink Floyd, you know, on Dark Side of the Moon. And then probably, would you say Wish You Were Here was was your moment that you felt, you know, was one of your favourite album covers? For me personally, it was. Wish You Were Here was one of those opportunities um, to really indulge in, in our fantasies. Dark Side of the Moon, to me, was not one of my favourite album covers. I mean, I always remember when we came up with the idea and going to show the band and Storm said to me, you know, this isn't really us because it's a graphic design. And we had to call in the talents of George Hardy, who worked with us a lot and was an extremely good illustrator to actually draw it out. And so for me, although it's probably the most iconic image that hypnosis ever did, it's not one of my favorites. And one of my favorites goes forward to that, to wish you were here, where I was sort of given carte blanche as a photographer to take Storm's ideas and do what I wanted with them. And in those days for a band to spend $50,000 on an album cover was not unheard of. And you have to remember that 
uh, albums sold in tens of millions. Yes. So the industry was awash with money. And we never worked for the record companies, only for the bands. And so, you know, when uh, Storm, Storm suggested to Pink Floyd at Abbey Road, you know, we want to set a man on fire, they all just sort of went, oh, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> it was just, oh, and by the way, we want to do a diver in somewhere in Lake in California. Oh, by the way, uh, you know, it was like Dark Side of the Moon too, you know, when Storm said, well, we want to go to Egypt and photograph the prince. Okay, well, you just better get on with it, you know. <laughs> you couldn't do that now, you know, yeah. it, it, not unless it's a very grand band. But in those days, the, the innovativeness of album covers was as important as making the music in a way. I mean, I'm not being pretentious about that, so please don't get me wrong. But it turned out that way. And I didn't think about it, nor did Storm at the time. We were too busy moving from one job to another. Um, we were producing probably a new album cover every two weeks. And these album covers took a long time to make, six weeks, two months, something like that. Because did you, did you, treat, did you start to treat the business more like the Andy Warhol model of, of trying to encourage people to work with you sometimes? I mean, David Bowie being one of those artists who were brilliant, but you noticed he was always kind of working with some good producers or good musicians and then bouncing ideas and then coming out with the next album. And amazingly, you know, the 70s did one album a year, produced several albums relocated did world tours i mean pretty busy time so you must have had that same momentum in the 70s absolutely i mean what started out as a studio in soho with just storm and me in a space uh within a very short period of time turned out to have you know uh, graphic designers working with photographic uh darkroom assistants uh a, a whole plethora of people and by well i suppose after 1973 after dark side of the moon when we were doing so much work, um, it became like an art factory. And, and Warhol is a very good example. I'm glad you mentioned him because it felt a bit like that, where Storm and I were sort of in control of the, the, the creation and the art part, but actually we needed all these other people to help us. People like George Hardy, Colin Elge, um, uh, who was an illustrator, uh, people like Richard Evans, who was a graphics guy. You know, you know, we needed all these people to help us on the road. And there's no question that without them, we could not have succeeded. It, it, it became an art kind of community. And I always remember we used to meet twice a week, um, about nine o'clock in the evening at Storm's apartment because he had a son to bring up. And the meetings would go until about two in the morning and everybody would turn up. And it was, it was a bit sort of like a sort of therapeutic session. Everybody would <laughs> throw, in their, throw in their bits and pieces and Storm would suddenly say, oh, I've got an idea. I mean, I remember, for example, Led Zeppelin presence with a black object. I remember sitting there with Peter Christofferson, who was a throbbing gristle, who was a partner in hypnosis, um, Storm, myself, and George Hardy, who was a very well-known graphic designer. And they all started talking about having a cocktail party where everybody had a black cat. And we all thought, well, let's Zeppelin, that will sound a bit naff. And then suddenly Storm said, what about 2001, where the black object at the end becomes so important in Arthur C. Clarke's book and, and, the, and the movie? And then George Hardy said, oh, how about this design? And it was all kind of like that. Everybody threw something into the melting pot. And out of that recipe uh, came a success. And I remember when I took that black object to Munich to show... Led Zeppelin, I, I, all I had was a black object and, and some pictures from an old National Geographic magazine. I put them on a table in the middle of a hotel suite and Jimmy Page walked in and said, I get it, that's it. You know, and even today, I saw Jimmy the other day 
even today we talk about the magic of that moment and it was just you know the ideas were so off the wall who'd expect that for a very heavy rock band who are the you know biggest band of the time uh to do something quite so esoteric and strange yes but they got it and did you and did you you know with you and storm being this kind of you know, like a very solid relationship. Did you complement each other and and sort of work on each other's kind of strengths and say, you know, and also know each other well enough to say, look, you're not great in these situations, but you're great in those situations. Were you were you quickly able to sort of complement each other, knowing who to talk, you know, who how to talk to people and and how to navigate those situations? I think because Storm was a couple of years older than me and. And, and far more, <coughs> sorry, far more intelligent than I was. Um, actually, he he was my mentor for the first couple of years in hypnosis. There's no question about that. But after that, I very much took the lead because Storm was a person who was argumentative, antagonistic, and incredibly rude to people. And consequently, he fell out with people like Paul McCartney. He fell out with Jimmy Page um, and many others. Uh, there were other people who absolutely gravitated to him, like Peter Gabriel, um, who adored Storm and loved the tussle and to and fro of the argument. Um, I remember seeing Storm and him in an argument about, um, I think it was uh, Scratch, the album cover, where oh, yes. he was scratching himself and talking about which was the best picture that went on for about four hours and got quite heated. But Peter loved that sort of banter with Storm. Other people, and Paul McCartney couldn't handle it at all. He just said, no, I'm not working with him. I'm working with you. Because I was diplomatic. I was, um, you know, polite. I was sort of wanting to, to work with them and wanted to get the job done. Whereas Storm was all about content. The content mattered more to him than the style. But I had the style and was the photographer. But when you match the two things together, we complemented each other. I mean, there's very little difference between Lennon McCartney, um, uh, Liam and, and Noel, and, and uh, you know Mick and Keith. There's always that friction between creative people to get what they want. And actually, at the end of the day, that's what leads to success. And I think when you have two people on board who have very defining roles and are as stubborn and as obstinate as each other, at the end of the day, you get magic. And that's yes. This is what happens with a lot of my favourite bands from the 80s. But did you find then, you know, sort of as 76, you know, you'd sort of certainly, sur you know, surfing the zeitgeist and, and suddenly must have felt good. Then when, you know, Malcolm McLaren came along, Jamie Reed, the punk movement, very different sound, very different sort of attitude. Did that sort of feel quite interesting to you, you know, and the company at that stage? Well, I'll tell you something. The funny thing is that the Sex Pistols used to rehearse right behind Hypnosis Studio. And Malcolm McLaren, I knew because I lived in Chelsea from having seditionary and all of that. Um, and they used to annoy the hell out of me. I mean, Peter Christofferson, again, who was Robin Gristle and who was uh, friends with uh, the Sex Pistols, particularly with John Lydon, took the first photographs of them and stuff like that. And I, I was kind of scathing. I was still the old hippie playing Crosby, Stills and Nash <laughs> in the studio while you know, Sex Pistols would be belting out, you know, sort of really bad cover versions of the small faces, you know. And uh, John 
John Lydon and the other guys, we used to meet in the corridor downstairs because you share the same front door. And what started out in about 1976 is sort of opening the door for each other, finished up sort of a year later with John Lydon wearing I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. And I remember confronting him saying, what the fuck's that? And he said, well, I do hate Pink Floyd, so you can fuck off. <laughs> I thought, okay, the lines are drawn. And Malcolm, I saw uh, just prior to their first gig that they played, he said, hey, listen, the band are playing tonight. You've got to come along, blah, blah, blah. Peter Christopherson's coming. To and I, I said, no, I'm not interested. And I regret it to this day. I didn't go to the first Pistols gig. It was such a stupid piece of arrogance on my behalf. Yes, it's it's tricky, isn't it? But then as, as we were trucking up to the sort of the late 70s, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in and then there's the, the Falkland War, the miners, Greenham Common, then slowly, you know, we, we've got other issues that, that, that bring up with the 80s. How did your relationship with the company and Storm continue through into another decade? I think one of the things about the late 70s was it was a miserable period of time. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I can remember three-day weeks when we didn't have electricity and we had to sit around by candlelight in the freezing cold. I, I remember the piles of garbage. I mean, I, I remember going to see Paul McCartney at One Soho Square. MPL was his company. And the, the centre of Soho Square was piled probably 15 to 20 feet with garbage in black plastic bags and there were rats running everywhere. You ca can't imagine the sign of, kind of poverty and an uncomfortableness that London represented at that time. It, it was not a great period of time to be in London at all. And I think part of that is what generated, of course, the Sex Pistols um, and their appeal to working class uh, boys and girls who could not possibly aspire to the things that some of the prog rock um, innovators uh, wanted, uh, you know, uh, Learjets and, and fame. Uh, and I always remember that um, I think it was Peter Saville who designed everything for New Order. And That's Order. right, yeah, the factory. Very well known. I remember him saying uh, to me once, you know, what the fuck have pigs flying over power stations got to do with 15-year-old kids of today? And I sort of poo-pooed it and said, hey, I, I'm employed. I'm doing the thing that I'm employed to do and I'm loving it. And he was like, well, you wait and see. Sure enough, what happened? Punk started and... Jamie Reed started, and Jamie Reed probably made, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols for about two pounds. And I was used to $50,000 budgets. I saw the writing on the wall that suit very soon, that was all going to disappear. Not so much for the clients that we had, but then, of course, in the late 70s, along came CDs, which were, you know, tiny, about five, yes. inches, five inches. And Storm, I think, was the first to recognize that our, our heady, days of album covers were over. The salad days were finished. And uh, he said to me, it's time to get out of here and we need to start making music videos, which MTV had started. And sure enough, against my better wishes, we did. And we had huge success with that. So we made the transition from still pictures and album covers into music video. And that was the best thing we ever did. My God, that was that was such a good move, wasn't it, really? And how did you sort of navigate that period? Did you sort of suddenly go, right, how do we make this? I mean, who, who mentored you during that period? 
thing was that before hypnosis started, Storm was at um, the uh, Royal College of Art studying film, and he'd always made films for himself. I mean, really fascinating little films, little 10 minute movies. Uh, but when I look back at them, they were really way ahead of their time. He was a very good uh, director. So when we moved into, I remember the first music video we made was Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home for Paul Young. And uh, it was a narrative script, which was very popular in those days. And Storm did a brilliant job. And the next minute, he's Paul Young's got a hit on his hand. So, so have we on MTV. Next thing, Robert Plant calls up and says, oh, I've got a new album, it's Big Log. I want to do something in California. So suddenly we're in LA shooting in California. Next thing, Jimmy Page phones up. I formed a, formed a band called The Firm with Paul Rogers from Bad Company. It just escalated from the Asia. Uh, I, I remember came along and we shot a film with them. John Wetton, who was a friend of mine, said, oh, we have to do this. And the budgets were huge. I remember for the firm, we made three films for 600,000 pounds. Can you imagine that kind of money in uh, around about 1982, 83, 84? The next thing was we were making feature films. We made a feature film with Barry Gibb called um, Now Voyager because uh, he wanted to break away from the image of the Bee Gees and become a, a serious actor, which didn't quite work out, but nevertheless. And we found ourselves, it, it just one thing, you know, one hand washes the other in that world. And we took a lot of our clients with us who were from the album cover world into the music video world. Yes. So it was, it was serendipity and uh, right time, right place. And we were lucky. And how did you and Storm, did you, when did you part? Well, it became very acrimonious between I and Storm, and it was extremely sad for me because basically Storm became the director. I had already been the photographer in Hypnosis, and Peter Christofferson had been somewhere in between as the lighting cameraman, and we wrote the ideas all together and stuff like that. And Storm became very difficult as a director, wanting the world when the money wasn't there. And so it became very... Uh, abrasive between, you know, the, the relationship of a producer-director is never great because the producer is always trying to save money, the director is always trying to spend it. Yes. So, you know, we, we'd have a $200,000 budget and Storm would spend $250,000 and I was tearing my hair out and I couldn't control him. It was, it became untenable and of course the, the company got into financial problems. He and I confronted each other one day and I said, I can't go on like this. But the reality was that I wanted to direct myself because I knew I could. And so after much gnashing of teeth and acrimony, Storm and I didn't speak to each other for 12 years. My and God. I to have a successful film company and he carried on making a few films, but, but then went back to doing album cover design, which is what he really loved doing. And very well he did at it too, you know, that's what yes. And if you could have said something to your like 16, 18 year old self starting out back then, I mean, it was, you know, with the, the experience that you've had, is there anything that you'd have wanted us to have whispered in their ear, even if they ignored you? Hard work. I mean, when hypnosis started, I think we probably worked seven days a week, 14 hours a day. And I'm not exaggerating. It was a, a labor of love and uh, gathering around you a team of people you trust to work with you is everything. And somehow we've managed to encapsulate that. But for the first 10 years of my working life, 
unfortunately, most of our private lives disappeared. Storm had problems, I had problems, you know, all the rest of it. And I think we put the work and hypnosis first. And when you're dedicated to the work, and first of all, it's so much fun, but secondly, it's quite a serious business. Uh, and I don't just mean financially, I'm, I'm talking in terms of the art of it. Um, it you know, something's got to give and it's hard work. Yes. And I would say to somebody, don't expect to give somebody to give you something they don't. Work, 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 and you'll receive the rewards. Do you slightly regret, though, the, the commitment you had to make and the sacrifices during that period? 53 years later, I'm exactly the same as I, I was then. The work comes first before everything. I work as hard as I ever did, and I'm absolutely dedicated to my profession, and I love every minute of it. And the other thing is, I'm so respectful of people like Pink Floyd, of Robert and Jimmy, of uh, Rolling Stones, of uh, you know Peter Gabriel, of giving us the opportunity to do the work that we wanted to do. And it was um, trust. They trusted us. And uh, they still do. Uh, and that, to me, is everything. Just and, you, and you must be really pleased that the album has now become back in vogue as well as as popular as now well not as popular now as it was then but obviously people are taking it seriously in the conversation as well you have this artwork it's not just this little plastic thing you know it is a proper piece of art so it must be nice to realize that your work is has got another audience decades later a completely new audience as well that's been seeing it as it was back in the 70s i'm so flattered by the fact that people take so much interest in the work that we did in the 1970s. And in fact, I have five or six exhibitions traveling through Europe, all with sort of 50 to 80 pieces of work in there. And I've got a huge retrospective in Holland at the Groningen Museum in uh, January with, with, with 140 pictures in it. So the album cover, the world of the album cover design has been taken very seriously now. And that is a, is, is a great um, accolade, both to Storm, who sadly departed, but and to me, and, I, and I'm forever grateful for it. Yes. And just last question. Is there a particular album cover that you think, wow, that is, you know, it really impressed you that wasn't one of your own? Yes, I do. I, I think there were various album covers that I, I really liked and I wish I could have done. One was, funnily enough, The Doors, Strange Days. Right, yes. A, a, a picture of a, a kind of surrealist image of a dwarf and a juggler and a, a showgirl. And a, it just sort of came across at the time as something that I thought Storm and I could have done. And, and I wish we'd worked with them. And the other person I wish I could have worked for was Bob Dylan, but we never did. Mm. So, you know, there have been moments where I've seen album covers that I thought were just wonderful. Mm. I thought those people we could work for. Anyway, look, it's going to get... It's going to go ping because we only have 40 minutes. I could always, well, I think I've got a lot there. So I'm really grateful for that. That's been a. And there you go. That was the end of, end of the call. That uh, was me. I know, so, so professional. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Aubrey Powell, who was um, part of Hypnosis with Storm. And um, yes, has this new book out, which is called Through the Prism. Available, as I said earlier, from all good bookshops, also online. Do check it out. It's a really interesting read with lots of interesting facts, figures 
and obviously pictures. But this has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some nice and groovy reason, you can on Facebook, Instagram and um, Twitter, kind of. Uh, just do C86 Show, you'll find it. And also, which is fascinating, all these have been archived and you can find those on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, that's life. Have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>